ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Tuesday the 12th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, eviction season. Some tenants struggle to pay the rent in the lead-up to a cost-of-living Christmas. And locals in far north Queensland brace for tropical cyclone Jasper. I'm really happy with us. Over 5,000 sandbags have been issued within the region, which means people are taking notice and they're actually getting ready. doesn't matter if you don't end up using them, but as long as you've got them, so if you do need them, you can stay safe. First today, Queensland's Deputy Premier Stephen Miles has won a brief political scuffle for the Sunshine State's top job. The 46-year-old is set to be the next Premier after his fellow left faction opponent and Health Minister Shannon Fentiman bowed out of the race. A major cabinet reshuffle is expected to follow as Labor tries to win back voters ahead of next year's state election. Stephanie Smale reports. When Anastasia Palaszczuk dropped her resignation bomb on the weekend, she anointed her deputy, Stephen Miles, as her successor. At first, he wasn't guaranteed to get the job, but after the Health Minister Shannon Fentiman pulled out, the path is clear. At a press conference in Brisbane today, Dr Miles said nothing is guaranteed until the Labor caucus votes on Friday, but he says he has asked the state's treasurer to be his deputy. What I can advise you today is that yesterday, I asked Cameron Dick to join me as my deputy in a leadership team that we will take to the Labor Party caucus on Friday. I'm grateful that he is supporting me. We have been friends for a long time. We share a vision for Queensland, one where government's job is to build for the future. Some Queensland voters seem happy he'll be taking over. I wish him all the best and I hope, you know, that that he likes it and um, has a long term like um, Palaszczuk did. I think he seems like a decent bloke and through COVID he always seemed like he knew what was going on. Stephen Miles has been a Queensland Labor MP since 2015 and has been in charge of a string of major portfolios, including health, which he juggled during the COVID pandemic. Griffith University political commentator Paul Williams says as a member of Labor's left faction, Stephen Miles was always in a solid position to take the top job. The left faction has controlled the party. Uh, Since 2014-2015, it controls the conference, it controls the caucus and therefore controls the cabinet. And so Stephen Miles, as the parliamentary head of the left, has the numbers. Stephen Miles's fellow left faction cabinet minister, Shannon Fentiman, had thrown her hat in the ring. But she's pulled out of the race this morning issuing a statement saying it's time for unity and for Labor to focus on staying in government at next year's election. Paul Williams describes the Miles and Dick partnership as a robust pairing that will need to take the fight to David Chrysafulli's LNP opposition, which is gaining traction in opinion polls. The question, however, is will the electorate buy it? Will the electorates look at these two men and say the party has rejuvenated itself sufficiently for the swinging vote or the jaded voter who used to love Palaszczuk but has turned off Palaszczuk? Will it be enough to bring that voter back to the fold? That's yet to be seen. 
but no one should be surprised if it doesn't work because the LNP is the favourite to win the next election. And will voters be wanting to see that point of difference early in 2024? Oh, absolutely. And voters are looking for that. There's an old Chinese politics proverb about it doesn't matter what colour the cat is as long as it catches mice. Those in the Queensland Labor fold agree it's time for a major refresh. The former Queensland Labor Speaker, John McKill, says there's been criticism of the Palaszczuk government rushing through important policy in response to nagging political issues like the state's youth crime wave. And he says that needs to change. What I'm sensing is that when you look at some of the responses to youth crime where government was seen to rush in and then had to backtrack, change it again. Now, I know you've got to respond to the political events of the day. The best response is a good considered cabinet process. What about the threat of the LNP? What does Labor need to do to win the next election? We're just under a year out, so there's plenty of time. So if it's a good government with good structures and makes it a contest of ideas, it's competitive. If, however, it stands there like a rabbit in the spotlight and it becomes a referendum on itself, then it will do badly. That report from Stephanie Smale. Well, extra emergency crews are being deployed in North Queensland where residents are bracing for damaging winds and storm surges as tropical cyclone Jasper approaches. The weather system is expected to make landfall near Cairns with wind gusts of up to 140 kilometres an hour. Locals are now putting final preparations in place with warnings that some communities could become isolated. Gavin Coote reports. As tropical cyclone Jasper sits off the coast of Cairns, many in the far north Queensland city are getting their generators ready in the event of any power outages. Wendy Robinson helps run an engine repair shop in Cairns. She's very busy trying to get some of these generators back in working condition. We actually set up like a 24-hour drop-off zone for those that were like driving from like an hour away to come and drop off their machines. Other shops as well, they are not even taking any more generators because they are at full capacity. So we've been trying to just work through the night because we're seeing that same theme where our generators are not working because they've been sitting there for a couple of years. It's a vast stretch of northern Queensland that's on cyclone alert, stretching from Cape Flattery to just north of Townsville. Michael Kerr is the mayor of the Douglas Shire north of Cairns, where residents are getting their homes prepared for a potential storm surge and damaging winds that could exceed 100 kilometres an hour. I'm really happy with there's over 5,000 sandbags have been issued within the region, which means people are taking notice and they're actually getting ready. doesn't matter if you don't end up using them, but as long as you've got them, so if you do need them, you can stay safe. Plans are also being made for potential flooding of hospitals. Lena Singh is the Chief Executive of the Cairns and Hinterland Hospital and Health Service. The far north is quite a large region. Uh, our region itself is the twice the size of Tasmania. And so we've been working through how we can uh, make sure that each of our health areas and those communities can continue to be served from a uh, health perspective um, and also to ensure that anyone that's got vulnerable or complex needs are able to come uh, into Cairns prior to the cyclone hitting so that we can uh, ensure that they have the best level of care. At Cairns Hospital, elective surgeries have been postponed from tomorrow. 
Lena Singh says there's the potential staff as well as patients could become isolated. You can imagine that obviously if uh, some of our communities get isolated through flooding, that also affects our staff. And so not all staff will be able to uh, you know, go to their normal place of work. And we've got plans in place uh, to ensure that we have adequate coverage uh, for that. The Mayor of Cairns, Terry James, says people within built-up areas of the city also need to take the warning seriously. It's been over 60 years since we've had a direct hit to Cairns and there's a lot of uh, stories out there that says we're protected or we're not protected. If you look back over the ages, we have been hit with cyclones. That's something that's playing on the mind of Wendy Robinson at the engine repair shop. For us, we're just sort of preparing for the worst and really, really hoping for the best. And how many cyclones have you lived through, Wendy? Uh, I've been lucky. Um, it just seems as if um, when I go on holidays, then they come and hit. But this time, because we've, we've decided to be in Cairns uh, for Christmas with family, it's going to hit us. So this will be personally my first full cyclone. But my husband, because he was born in Cairns, he's gone through a lot of cyclones. So this is just one of the things that we live with uh, up in the tropics. That's uh, Cairns businesswoman Wendy Robinson ending that report from Gavin Coote. You're tuned in to The World Today. China has lifted suspensions on three Australian abattoirs as it continues to unwind trade restrictions on Australian goods. The abattoirs were put on a blacklist in 2020 and 2022 after COVID-19 cases were reported among workers at the plants. I spoke with our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts, a short time ago. Stephen, why did China impose these bans and and was it part of that broader campaign of economic sanctions that Beijing imposed on Australia? Look, Beijing imposed these bans and two of them were essentially banned back in about 2020, the other in early 2022, because there were COVID cases in these abattoirs. And and Beijing basically had a policy where if you had a COVID case in an abattoir, then it would typically suspend trade from it because it was worried about the prospect of infected meat coming over. So in that sense, the bans were by the book. But what happened is that they essentially were, were very protracted. They lingered on much longer than the meat exporters expected that they should or would. And most analysts said the reason for that was almost certainly because of the broader bilateral political tensions between Australia and China. This, in other words, falls into that classic grey zone sort of case of economic punishment where you've got an an ostensibly plausible reason for a ban, uh, but then it's maintained longer than it really needs to be in order to send a clear political message to Australia. So what we're seeing now is that very slowly those bans are essentially being dropped. We've now seen three large abattoirs being allowed to import their products back into China. There are still another seven, Sally, um, who were caught up in other cases of regulatory difficulty. Uh, For example, uh, disputes over possible contamination, which remain on the blacklist. Uh, But the government seems pretty confident that given the signals that are emerging from Beijing at the moment, that they too will probably be allowed to trade again uh, before too long. It's worth putting this in context here. You know, the trade in red meat has gone on to China despite these bans. There are some 40 or so uh, abattoirs 
cars that have been exporting to China, but the exports, which used to be around $3 billion, have really fallen off quite a bit because of these protracted bans. And the fact that these suspensions have now been lifted does seem to be another sign that Beijing is willing to drop trade restrictions imposed as political punishment on Australia. Very slowly, the trade is now really normalising between the two countries. And Stephen, what's the state of play? How many other goods remain blocked from China? And when do we think that those final restrictions could be lifted? Well, we're really down to just a couple of exports that remain blocked or in some cases restricted from China. We've seen many of those goods blocked, allowed back in. It's really just wine uh, and lobsters that remain blocked. Lobsters, you might recall, they were never officially blocked, but uh, they were essentially left you know, to die on the tarmac in, in China. And ever since then, there's been an unofficial ban on Australian rock lobsters, which basically means lobsters have got to go through you know, grey zone channels to get back into China largely being smuggled over the border from Hong Kong. Uh, and that means that the uh, the industry has taken a real hit. The other big one that's still outstanding is wine. Now, much like it did with barley, Beijing has agreed to review those crippling wine tariffs that were placed on Australian wine exports uh, back in 2021. Now, the minister has said that he expects that process to be completed by the early-ish part of next year. He's even suggested it might happen before then, but we'll have to wait and see. And if that happens, as the government expects, then we'll see those restrictions officially lifted in the coming months. So once wine and lobsters are done, if they are done, then that is basically it by my calculation. There are no substantial restrictions on Australian goods. Of all of those restrictions imposed at the nadir of the relationship, they're actually remaining on Australian products. So at that point, once wine and lobsters are done, we will be able to say that the trade wars, for lack of a better phrase, between Australia and China have now officially come to an end. That's our foreign affairs reporter there, Stephen Jedgetts in Canberra. The global climate conference, COP28, appears to be heading for a stalemate with a group of countries refusing to sign the draft agreement. Negotiators at the summit in the United Arab Emirates are trying to strike a deal. The sticking point is where the nation should commit to a complete phase-out of fossil fuels. But the draft agreement has a lot more detail than that. David Sparks has been taking a look. Getting everyone on the same page is proving a tall order at the United Nations Climate Conference. The organisers of the summit have released a new draft agreement. The text needs full support from the 197 countries at COP28, plus the European Union. But that looks unlikely because the draft still doesn't commit the world to ending fossil fuel use. Instead, it calls for countries to reduce the consumption and production of fossil fuels in a just, orderly and equitable manner. The Danish Minister for Global Climate Policy, Dan Jorgensen, says that's not good enough. I definitely sensed many, many, many countries not supporting this text because it wasn't ambitious enough. So it's clear that this is only the starting point and that we are not, not even close to getting a result. On one side of the argument are the oil and gas producing countries of OPEC fighting against the push to abandon fossil fuels. On the other side, there are the poor nations worried about climate related disasters. Dr Simon Bradshaw is research director at the Climate Council in Australia. He says most countries want an agreement to unequivocally commit to phasing out fossil fuels. First of all, this is not the final decision, and there will be many countries fighting hard to strengthen this language over the next 24 hours. 
it is very clear that this latest text is woefully inadequate. It really lacks any focus on urgency and the action that has to happen through the 2020s. It doesn't mention oil and gas. It leaves the door open for expensive and fanciful technologies like carbon capture and storage. And most worryingly, it appears to make everything in there optional. Um, there's no sort of binding commitment for countries on this. The latest draft is 22 pages long and it includes several ingredients. A lot of the focus is quite rightly on the language around fossil fuel phase out, but this also deals with uh, adaptation efforts, so how we can cope with the impacts of climate change that's going to past in action can no longer be avoided. There it really does call for transformational efforts across all aspects of society. It also recognises that there's a big gap when it comes to finance required by vulnerable communities to adapt to the impacts of climate change. And the draft calls for wealthy countries to take responsibility. Other things that are important is it notes, as these decisions always do, the historic responsibility of the world's big emitters, developed countries like ourselves, to be really leading the charge, both when it comes to driving down our own emissions and providing support to poorer nations to respond to the climate crisis. The talks are due to finish in the next 24 hours, but Dr Simon Bradshaw says that deadline is unlikely to be reached. Having been to a number of these COPs, they, they never finish on time. It's clear at the moment there's a lot still in play. There's very little chance it will be finishing Tuesday Dubai time. I think we'll have at least one more iteration of this uh, draft decision. With many countries, those of the Pacific, Australia as well, the EU, the US, all fighting to ensure we have much stronger language around fossil fuel phase out. That's Dr Simon Bradshaw there from the Climate Council, David Sparks, with that report. Some renters are facing a tough holiday season with evictions set to spike across Australia. Advocates fear that the cost of living crisis will make the annual trend, which real estate agents call the eviction season, worse than usual, as some renters struggle to pay the bills. And as the face of the typical Australian renter changes, campaigners are calling for a fairer system, which prioritises stable, long-term housing. Eliza Getsy reports. 30-year-old Sam isn't particularly looking forward to this Christmas. He's rented his home in Maroubra in Sydney's eastern suburbs for the last three years and was recently notified by email he had 90 days to find a new one. They didn't give a reason. They just gave an eviction notice. I mean, it was pretty, pretty devastating. I feel like after trying to establish a stable housing situation to suddenly have it ripped out from under you just when, you know, work can be tough over the Chrissy break and you just want to be relaxing with family and then you have to suddenly go on the house hunt. Re-entering the Sydney rental market at a time of historically low vacancy rates is filling him and his two housemates with anxiety. We went to an inspection. You know, there was lines around the block. We bid slightly more than they were asking and they still said no to our application. So right now the current plan is live in vans until we can afford a house. Sam's household is not alone. In the real estate industry, the Christmas period carries the nickname eviction season. University of New South Wales researcher Dr Chris Martin says it's a real trend. There's always a jump in the first quarter of every year in landlords' applications to the New South Wales Tribunal for, for the termination of tenancies. And that, that jump is about 
15 or 20 percent above the average for the year. And that's been the case for quite some years now. At the university's City Futures Research Centre, Dr Martin is undertaking the first large-scale study in Australia of how private renters lose their homes and the long-term impacts of evictions. And he says it's affecting more and more Australians as people rent for longer. He says laws in most states prioritise the rights of landlords over those of tenants. We don't have a lot of data about evictions in Australia. That's a problem. I mean, it it should be regarded as one of the key indicators, key performance indicators of our housing system. It's one of the most traumatic things that our housing system can do to a person. Historically, we've got an, an image of eviction, like someone's possessions being put out on the footpath. We don't have that image, a contemporary image of, of eviction these days, and it's, it's become invisible. Meanwhile, new data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare shows that last year more than 72,000 Australians were supported by a homelessness service every day. Dr Martin's research suggests 75,000 private renters are evicted each year. Dom Rowe is the CEO of Homelessness New South Wales, which supports people who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. She says the cost of living crisis means this eviction season is likely to be worse than usual. They're pretty tough choices that people are being forced to make. I mean, we've heading into the summer months and that's likely to be hotter than ever and people will be needing cooling in their houses. Uh, We know that energy costs are increasingly high. We know that groceries continue to grow in terms of how much they cost the household and we know that rents are increasing. In New South Wales alone, for example, rents have increased $70 in the last 12 months and households just can't bear that increasing cost any further. We know that in terms of the number of people that are accessing homelessness services, about two in five are actually unable to meet their rents because of financial difficulties and we expect those financial difficulties to continue. That's Dom Rowe there from Homelessness New South Wales ending that report from Eliza Getze. Finally today, do you remember when cash was king? While those days are fading fast, the Reserve Bank is working to ensure that cold, hard cash keeps flowing through the economy. The demise of cash has unfolded so quickly that RBA Governor Michelle Bullock worries that some businesses and consumers could soon be charged for cash transactions. For more, I spoke a short time ago with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, just how rapid is the demise of cash and how concerning is it for the RBA? Well, Sally, the data tells the story. Back in 2007, cash accounted for 70% of all consumer payments. It was down to 13% in 2022 and will probably be in single digits by 2030, which goes to the crisis in the cash delivery business. The decline in the cash transit business is so serious that they say it's unsustainable because of the declining demand for cash and commercial banks are now seeking regulatory approval from the competition regulators so they can sit down and talk to each other about ensuring deliveries of cash. Now, the Reserve Bank Governor, Michelle Bullock, spoke in Sydney this morning almost exclusively about the cash decline, noting, however, there are still uses for cash, saying that she had no sympathy for her son whose credit card didn't work one night and he didn't have any cash to pay for petrol. And she said she was also concerned about the declining use of ATMs and how to regulate things like mobile wallets and buy now, pay later services. So Peter, if if cash is becoming so unpopular, could the day come where consumers are actually charged for using cash? 
Well, Michelle Bullock sees that as a potential risk that consumers might one day be charged to actually use cash the same way they get hit with credit card fees. Now, Ms Bullock warned there'd be a major consumer pushback if this eventually happened, but she did say the price of using cash was probably already baked in to goods and services. The challenge with cash is that it really does have a big community public service sort of aura attached to it. They're prepared to pay to get it out of an ATM, but if businesses started charging people to use cash, I suspect there would be um, a very big uh, backlash. But what's going to happen and what does happen at the moment is that the costs end up embedded in the costs of the financial institutions that are providing the services. That's RBA Governor Michelle Bullock there. And, and Peter, did Michelle Bullock give any sign that the interest rate pain is over for borrowers? Well, she wasn't going to be avoiding that question, but certainly no signal from Michelle Bullock, who left the RBA's cash rate on hold at 4.35%. Since then, evidence the economy is slowing from 13 interest rate rises since May last year. So still on the theme of declining cash and some borrowers don't have enough to pay basic bills, which is the whole idea of that strategy to bring down inflation. Michelle Bullock is settling into the job, having taken over from Philip Lowe and September and since then she's been refining her image given that her finger's been on the unpopular interest rates button and she was careful about any pre-Christmas guidance in this answer to a bit of a festive question from moderator Juanita Phillips. We're coming up to Christmas, any Christmas message you'd like to give us and what we can look forward to in the economy next year? Now that's a nasty question Juanita. (laughs) (laughs) My only uh, message to people is that look I know everyone's worked really hard this year. It's been a hard year for people at work. It's been a hard year for people who are dealing with rising interest rates and rising inflation. I'd like to think that we can all take some time to be with our families and um, hopefully things are going to get better next year. It's a little bit of Christmas optimism there from Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock and earlier our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan. That's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Did you know there's a cyber attack reported in Australia every six minutes? There are criminal groups trying to disrupt our lives and steal our data. But it's countries like China and Russia that are becoming more aggressive in targeting Australian businesses with government secrets. Today, Executive Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX, Catherine Manstead, on why the threat is increasing and how we can protect ourselves. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.